Good morning, good morning. It is Sunday morning here in the Triple H studios and you are listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. Now, this week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is about suicide and how we can support those who have been left behind. I will be joined in the studio a little later by David Seiter, who is a working psychologist, as well as a recently elected councillor for St Ives Ward. He's been working with families affected by suicide and has been campaigning for more awareness around how we communicate and support those affected by suicide for many years. First, though, let's take a moment to look at why this is important to cover in a show like this. This show is about community and relationships with each other. If we have members of our community that have a level of pain that they feel they cannot continue their lives, or members of our community have lost someone who was unable to find a way through the dark feelings of despair, then we need to know how we can support them. What do the numbers say? Well, currently in Australia, we have the highest rate of suicide in over 10 years. Suicide is the biggest killer of men between 20 and 49, eclipsing road accidents, cancer and coronary heart disease. Now, even though more males die by suicide than females, currently three times more, the rate is slowly changing to be a more even balance. And note, I didn't say there was a reduction in males. I said there was a, a more balanced, there's, there are more females taking their lives as well. The suicide rate amongst Indigenous people is more than double the rate for non-Indigenous people. And, you know, let's look at attempted suicide. For every death by suicide, there are estimated to be as many as 30 people who have attempted to take their life. Lifeline put that as approximately 65,300 suicide attempts every year. Bearing in mind the numbers are likely to be underreported due to a number of factors, including culture, religious beliefs, a large element of confusion and doubt, the sensitivity perhaps of the coroner if it's a case that involves a child. These numbers could be far higher. And these numbers represent people. And it felt really important to me to find a way to do a show raising awareness of suicide, whilst at the same time promoting alternative ways to deal with the feelings that come up at that time. And I believe the footprint that we have for this show is very much that. You know, how do you live a life in your day-to-day -day living that means that you don't get to a place where the only option that you feel is available to you is to take your life or to end your life? Earlier this year... I got back in touch with a woman that I'd known many years ago. She is someone that I um, had read about her work and I, I chose to do a program with her. And while I was doing that program, we got talking about her brother who had taken his life four years ago. 
the anniversary anniversary of his death was approaching and we were talking about what support was around her and what she was going to do around that time and if there was any support that I could offer from over here. My friend shared that talking about it was important and that it helped her and if she could help others, then she was always up for that. At the same time, I was aware that I had been unable to do a show with David Sider earlier in the year on suicide because I'd got sick. And here I started to see a way for my friend to share her story of being a family member affected by suicide. For David to show, share his experience, his childhood experience of his friend taking his life, as well as talk about how we can support those who are left behind, you know, where we go from here. So I know what it's been like for me to prepare the show and I know what it's brought up for me. So I urge anyone affected by what we're going to talk about today to reach out to some of the support services that we have available to us. And they're um, listed on the Stay the Loop with Lucy website. They will be certainly when I post this um, show later today. But they're also on the Triple H homepage. And if in any doubt, um, call Lifeline. That's, that's 13, 14, 11, which is always um, just 24-hour help. So let me introduce you to Jenny, my dear friend, and a person who offered to share her experience with you so that we can start to lower the stigma around suicide. Listen out for Jenny's father and how much he wanted to change the statistics around men's mental health so that suicide was not ever an option. My brother was called Sam. Uh, he was actually my half-brother. We never really grew up together because he lived with my father and his mum and I was away at boarding school. But I was probably 11 when he was born. And so I was a really great age to kind of care for a baby and I just loved him and we always had a really close connection ever since he was born. So even though I didn't see him like on a daily or weekly basis when I did see him it would be for you know like a prolonged period of time in the holidays and yeah we were super close. And so did he tell you when he started struggling with his mental health? No not one bit and you would never have even known it from his actions or or what he was up to. It, it, there was no clear sign that he gave to anyone. I mean, hindsight's a very good thing. And after he took his life and I was kind of trying to come to terms with what had gone on and why he might have made that, that choice, it was very clear to look back and... and well, knowing him so well, I knew the things that upset him and that got to him. But, for example, he really hated um, family disputes, people arguing, any kind of tension um, between anyone, really. He just wanted... I mean, he was a very joyful, joyful guy and he, he just wanted everyone to have fun and get on with each other. And so there were definitely times where you could see that he was really upset. However, not anything to take his life like this. Yeah. How old was he when he passed? 23. How did you find out? My father rang me and told me 
I did fine. <laughs> wow. You just had the anniversary. Fourth year, just gone. Does it get any easier each year? Do you know what? It has done, actually. But, I mean, for me, it's very strange. His birthday is exactly a month before the date he took his life. And that was the last time that I spoke to him. So his birthday is always like a, well, a difficult, difficult day for me because it's his birthday and it's also the last day that I spoke to him. Mm. Then a month mm. later, exactly to the, to the date, is the day he took his life, which also happens to be World Suicide Prevention Day. <laughs> so mm. that day, there's never any getting away from the fact even if I try to, it it is somewhere it comes up, even though in the world we don't really like to talk about it or, or be very aware about it. It's still brought up on, on the radio or, or somewhere there'll be some sign about it. So After he passed, what was the response of people around? How did they deal with his passing? Hmm... It was, well, it was really, I found it really um, kind of shameful and hideous in a way because <laughs> the family disputes that Sam hated so much ended up, you know, playing out just like normal and, and even his death was just another example where you know people's emotions come out there's and particularly around a suicide which isn't expected and and that there's no kind of apparent rhyme or reason for it that you know people are asking questions and they're trying to apportion blame and and when there's already a history of you know family dispute then then it's easy to kind of start throwing throwing mud at each other. And it it wasn't pretty. <laughs> was he a religious man? No. No, he wasn't. So what happened with his funeral? We it was in a church, in a village church, and then he was cremated. Uh, once the arguments had died down. Did did people talk about him much, or what what happened in the community? Not so much in the family, but in the community. Um. Well, I don't know. It was quite interesting. I don't think the the arguments ever died down, and they probably just cemented what people felt about them. Um, what I loved, and I think was really important to to share, is that my father made a real point at the funeral because obviously lots of Sam's friends were there. Um, and when the policemen, that day when we found out, we all came together and um, a policeman came and talked to us and he said, you know, that actually this was kind of the the most, I don't know what the words are, you know, the way most young males took their life nowadays. And so Sam fell into that category. And... I think it also coincided with a time where quite a few celebrities um, had taken their own lives. And 
my dad felt it was really important to get across the fact that it it wasn't a celebration and and not to at all kind of give anyone anything to go on to believe that that was you know a cool or an appropriate or any kind of decision to really make because everything around us was kind of telling us that it was normal and that it didn't really have many effects but actually the truth is it's it's absolutely devastating for everybody it's almost as if in trying to make the pain less there was almost a little bit that was saying it was normal and and your dad was desperately trying to say no the ripple effect is huge this should never be one of your options for the problems that you're feeling yeah absolutely and and for there not to be any glamour with that because there there is quite a you know unfortunately and it sounds sick to say it but there is some kind of glamorous side to that and it was really important just to get that across that yeah it's not normal and and it's so unnecessary like the truth is if if Sam had spoken to any one of us about how he was feeling there's no way that that he wouldn't have been supported but it's incredible and we all know like how you can become so kind of introverted and your problems can feel so huge it was just really important to get that message across that you know we're all here for each other and we all have something important to bring i do believe a few times people like to say sam died but they won't give the specifics that he took his own life so it's kind of like a it's interesting to look at and see how we use we use those words to to the effect that we want to have them you know like we don't want to tell people in in some cases particularly i suppose as a as a school or as a family as well you know like it is people do ask questions if someone's taken their life and and i know for me there was a lot of i had to work through like guilt and sadness and you know is there something i could have done what if i'd done this and you know there's so many reasons why people don't want to talk about it because people are always looking for a responsible party mm. so in that respect people don't want to give out the information but probably on a more on a less personal level people are happy to share that information <laughs> yeah i think there's that there's that bit of not knowing also how much to say because there's just an awkwardness of not knowing quite what you're going to get back when you say how are you going yeah people don't know what to say but actually what i found again really interesting was although there were equal amounts of people who didn't know what to say you know and i absolutely don't blame them because in the same situation I, i would have been the same but there was an equal amount of people that all knew someone that had taken their own life mm-hmm. and i found that 
incredible. It is far more common than we realise, isn't it? And and um, I, I remember you you wrote somewhere about um, so many of them being underreported because of religious reasons, or you know, it's not conclusive because there was a person involved with a car and a tree, and and they might have fallen asleep. It might not have been intentional. You know, there are so many the, the statistics that we have may well be underreporting the issue that's at hand. Yeah, absolutely. And it serves, you know, it serves. And I always found it, um, and I still do find it quite interesting, even if on your, you know, your iPhone or, you know, your smartphone, whenever I tried to write suicide, nothing would ever come up. There are words that are actually blocked and it's as if they don't exist. And I find that quite... um, telling of us as a society of how we're not willing to look there and we're not willing to address what's what's really going on. Can I ask if you find the word commit suicide offensive? I don't, I suppose because I've lived through it and I feel I've kind of dealt with it as as much as I can and I and I keep exploring that so that I'm not shut down to it. Because really it's the truth and and to not say that is to not honour what's gone on and to to kind of add to that unawareness for everybody else. Because if I were to not tell people that my brother committed suicide, if I just said, oh, my brother died, then again, that's just another opportunity where suicide isn't talked about. And it's not to say that I... I want to constantly be talking about suicide, but it's just to bring an awareness that that does go on. I guess it's the commit part of the sentence. You know that it sounds like it's a sin and which brings in the religious aspect and the judgment aspect. Ah, that's really interesting. And I've never actually thought of it like that for me. And when I found out how my brother, my brother hung, hung himself. And to me, that was, the worst way that I could envisage anyone taking their own life. Mm. And and I kind of really explored that and why I felt like that. Like if he'd have taken an overdose or even if he'd like shot himself or I don't know, I kind of went to all those places and still like the hanging was just the one thing that I, I found really well it really upset and saddened me and with that there's a commitment to taking your own life (laughs) because once that chair or whatever's gone from beneath you there's there's no return Hmm. so for me I've never seen it the way you've just presented it but I definitely see it that he committed that like he was committed to doing that like if you take an overdose you could be found and you could be rushed to the hospital and have your stomach pumped or you might not take enough tablets or lots of, you know, possible outcomes. Mm. But that way, yeah, I find pretty... You've taught me something, a commitment to do something as opposed to um, a, um, a sin. It's a commitment, a choice, 
and there is that choice. There are, there are people who, um, who I've spoken to, families, who say that it was a decision they made. If they could have um, gone the euthanasia route, they would have done that. They couldn't, and therefore it was done by more dramatic means. Uh, I found that, um, I mean, you know, the conversations that families are prepared to have, and I, I thank you for yours, because in you sharing yours, we get a better understanding, and that can only help um, us as families either help get, get through that time or support others and hopefully um, offer their family members the support to maybe not go through and not make the commitment to end their lives. And what, yeah, definitely. And what I really get as well is that for me, talking about it like this and it being openly discussed it's not even keeping it within the family. It's about actually m making it understood by everybody. Because what I really, the only thing I kept coming back to, I remember someone saying to me that suicide was the most selfish act that there, there was. And I'd heard that a few years back before Sam had, had died. And um, I just remember hearing it, and it didn't really mean anything to me. And then on the day of Sam's funeral, I remember looking around at everyone, and just I remember hearing that that suicide is the most selfish act, and I suddenly like could really feel it in my body and understand it, in that there were all these people here, you know, absolutely mortified and mourning his lo the loss of Sam. And I'm sure if he could actually see what was going on or if people could see how much they affect others and how much people do love and care for them, that perhaps they might not make that choice. And so that was like a huge kind of thing for me to to feel, but then what I really got from it, the next kind of stage was that, wow, like how little was he told or how little was he confirmed that he was enough just for being him. And so, I mean, I've always been one that kind of talks to everyone and says hello and, I mean, I love people, but since my brother committed suicide it's brought an extra kind of level of responsibility to how I am with people and so particularly like my kids often pull me and go oh mom you're so embarrassing because <laughs> like, at the checkout I'll be really talking to someone and like and then I'll I'll be in the queue and you'll like see people and they won't even talk to the person on the checkout and what I just really got from my brother's death was that you know, just even that one smile across the room to someone or that one, hello, how are you? Or whatever it may be, makes such a difference. And so for me, like talking about this and bringing an awareness to it and for everyone to understand that it's not even about putting an effort in, it's just about changing the way that we, we're used to living and actually really connecting to people. It doesn't have to be anything dramatic or for a long period of time, but just taking a moment 
and appreciating that person could could save that person's life at the end of the day. We just don't know what's going on for everyone. I love that. So it's the ripple effect, isn't it? It's like you you, you can't help okay. Sam. Sam her, Sam isn't with us anymore. But he, but what you can learn from it can affect so many other people. And it doesn't matter if you know it. You just connect with people just in case. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, we're all we're taught in so many in so many ways to kind of you know. Put a put a brave face on, or don't you know? I don't know. So I mean, we could go on. There are so many ways where we're taught and we're asked politely or whatever disguise it comes in to not share about how we're feeling. And of course, it's not always appropriate and it's not necessary. But equally so, then there's more compassion and understanding to be had and given by us all, I feel. And with no outcome required, because what you're sharing with me is that you're not talking to people waiting for them to say, oh, thank you, you saved my life. None of that. There's no outcome. You're just talking to people because you you love collecting with them. Yeah, and we, we kind of seem to forget that we have that effect on other people too. You know, we're we're the owner of that like we can we can make that change it isn't yeah I I really understand and appreciate that probably we all know moments even like when you just get a a wave from someone across across the playground or across the street or and you you just you can feel it and it can lift you or it can confirm you or it can whatever it can be you know or even road rage on the negative aspect you know like if you 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 get to feel that and so it's about bringing an awareness and a responsibility to to everything that we do really yeah thank you so much i really truly appreciate the you taking the time to to talk to us and to share with us your experience and you've done it with grace and um well deeply appreciative thank you thank you what a sensitive interview by jenny and i'm so appreciative that that she was able to do that with me we're going to talk to david Sider in a moment and he's going to share his experience what I would love to do is, you know, really build the awareness of how as a community we can be more supportive both in a prevention and a support process after the death of a suicide. So one of the um, websites that I was doing my research on was reachout.com um, and they have a, a fabulous resource about how to cope with the suicide of a loved one. It's normal to feel a lot of things all at once. So um, shock was one of the the elements that they talk about. Anger was another, confusion, guilt, and despair. Now, those are, those are all the signs of, um, of grief and loss, but there is an added layer when it's to do with suicide because the guilt and the anger perhaps play a different kind of role and that confuses both the person who's experienced it and the person who um, 
who's supporting that family member or that friend. Without further ado, let me say hello to, to David and um, introduce you to David Saito. Welcome, David. Uh, thanks very much, Lucy. It's great to be here. It's lovely to have you. Now, um, before the break, we heard from someone called Jenny Hayes. It was a story I've heard so many times over. And when you first came in the studio, and I think that was three years ago that I first interviewed you, you shared with me the importance of making a difference for young people and giving them permission to be more sensitive and supporting young people to be more sensitive because you had had an experience of someone at school, a friend of yours taking his life. Would you feel comfortable sharing that with us now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I went to a, an all-boys private school uh, growing up and uh, uh, one of my best friends, this was a friend who uh, played cricket with me on the cricket team and played rugby on the rugby team. Uh, he was a, a, a kid who um, you know, always seemed fairly happy, uh, high, high academic achiever. Um, and one day, unfortunately, he decided to take his life and... Uh, being a, an all-boys private school in the 1980s in Australia, I mean, we didn't really know to, how to handle that. Uh, no one had ever heard of the word depression. No one had heard of the word anxiety. Uh, there was so much uh, stigma to do with mental illness uh, and things around suicide. And um, I still recall the, the headmaster of this school standing up in assembly the day after it happened and, and saying that if any boy talks about this again, you're going to be expelled. Um, and that was uh, quite a shock because it was sort of like, well, hang on, here's this boy that was one of my best friends who would come to all my birthday parties. I'd even climbed Ayers Rock with him and his family in the Northern Territory. One day he was my best friend. The next day he had gone and we were told we were never to talk about him again. And, uh, and that's what happened. We actually never mentioned his name ever again. Uh, and that was the mid-80s in Australia, and that's how we dealt with it. Um, and that was just due, due to the stigma. I think it was due also to the school just wanting to sort of, you know, protect their reputation as well in, in wow. the local community. But uh, the great thing is is that things have changed since then. Things have, haven't they? And I know that schools work very hard to support their students if they have a young person in there in their community who's taken their life um, or even ex-students who've, who've taken their lives, they still, they still mention it in assembly and they still support and offer support to those in the school. You offer that to schools, don't you? You offer to go in and support schools. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in this part of Sydney, in northern Sydney, we do get a, a number of suicides, unfortunately, every year. And um, I certainly offer... Uh, my services. I, I work in private practice, um, but I think the great thing now, there has been a shift that uh, if a student does take their life, uh, we do get a, a number of counsellors coming into schools. Certainly Department of Education gets counsellors coming in to speak to the students, uh, and the same with private schools as well. So it's very important uh, that we do talk about these things and not just sort of sweep them under the carpet and pretend that they haven't happened. Conversely, one of the things that Jenny brought up in her interview and I know um, means a lot to the families of those who, who are left behind is that there should be no glamorising of someone taking their life, um, whatever age, 
um, and the and that creates a dilemma, doesn't it? Because you want to celebrate the person that you've lost, equally saying how I wish you'd given me and everyone an opportunity to support you further. How do you how do you find in the in you know in your private practice or the people you work with? How do you support people when they have that dilemma that they want to remember them and they want to celebrate their life, but equally there's such a sadness in that life that it creates this dilemma. It's 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 a very tough one. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of obviously you know grief and loss that families go through, and I've I've worked with a lot of families where they have lost. Um, kids obviously as parents you always expect that uh, your children are going to outlive you so there is a huge amount of grief when a parent loses a child parents equally go through a lot of uh, often a lot of guilt as to what did I do wrong uh, as does the immediate family as well Um, sometimes I think also the family thinks well what what could I have done more to help uh, someone but uh, it can be tough because these things are often very hidden Um, now, you mentioned glamorising, and, and, and unfortunately there have been things uh, in society. Uh, there was a show recently on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why, mm-hmm. uh, which myself and a lot of other clinicians were quite worried about because um, a lot of young it became a cult following with a lot of young yes. people where it did actually show a girl sort of self-harming and, and then taking her life. But unfortunately, it didn't show, it didn't give any education, um, anything like that as to where to go to help afterwards. So I think it's very important that we never sort of glamorise suicide. The the media are very careful not often to report on on suicides because Mm. uh, they don't want um, sort of copycat things happening. But equally, I think in schools, we need to have very, a lot of open discussion, a lot of education. Certainly our former Australian of the Year, Professor Patrick McGorry, talks a lot about the fact that we have to actually talk about these things rather than sweeping them under the carpet. Um, and I think for families, um, it's Im- often important, if, if they can, to share their story. Um, I was dealing with a, a, a young person a few years ago who uh, did take his life um, and uh, the family were great in that uh, they actually shared what happened. And this was to do with um, a drug, uh, which was called synthetic LSD. Uh, and this family actually uh, went into the media and actually sort of gave warnings out there to other families and young people about the fact that this drug caused their son to take his life. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes that actually can help a family where they think, well, my child didn't die in vain, that I'm actually out there trying to educate and trying to inform other other young people and families. And it's true, isn't it? If we don't talk about it, we leave people under-resourced to deal with what's out there and what is at play. Um, we leave them at the mercy of websites which show you how to self-harm and it's dysfunctional that that kind of website is okay. Um, on our in, in our community but as parents if we don't know that that's out there and we avoid a conversation with a young person or with our brothers or sisters no matter what age then there is always someone who will be able to give um, an answer or a solution it could very easily be incredibly dysfunctional compared com- and unhelpful compared to helpful and supportive 
Patrick McGorry is a great example, isn't he? Because um, there was a fantastic 7.30 report which uh, talked about um, some of the failings in the system. And we're going to go to a break now, but I would love to come back and talk about that with you because mental health is rising. It is a massive problem. Uh, we have fantastic research saying that it is important to talk about and, and that we need to, that there are, there is um, early intervention is necessary. And yet we don't deal with it in the same way that we do with cancer. And we don't deal with it in the same the way we do with uh, um, heart disease. And yet suicide's a big killer than both of those. So what is it? Where is the failing happening? So I'd love to go into that a little bit with you when we come back. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Welcome back. Um, we've been talking about suicide this morning and how to support families who are affected by it, um, those left behind. And, and I've been talking with David Seiter. Welcome, David. Thanks very much, Lucy. Um, what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about what it's like in the healthcare system. There was a very honest interview done um, on ABC 730 between Pat McGorry and John Mendoza about his nephew, Jeff Mendoza. They were both talking about suicides that had failings within our system. Can you tell me what the process is and where you're noticing that we, you know, we're not addressing it in the same way with the same resources or with the same dedication as we are? Some of the less... Um, the, the, uh, the something like cancer or heart disease which has less people dying of it however it's got it's got much more representation and people are more willing to to talk about it and do something about it yeah absolutely look um well certainly the the interview you were referring to was on yeah it was on abc 730 report um look professor john mendoza and professor patrick magoria are, are two of the leading mental health professionals in australia uh, John Mendoza was uh, employed under the Rudd-Gillard government to actually really reform mental health services across Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, he ended up resigning from that position because he just felt that uh, the government actually wasn't taking it seriously enough. And uh, unfortunately, his nephew did um, uh, pass away uh, through suicide. Uh, and in that interview... Uh, his nephew actually presented to a hospital up in Queensland, obviously saying he was suicidal. They ended up releasing him, uh, and then he ended up taking his life uh, the next day. And uh, Professor John Mendoza went on to sort of say that, look, in Australia we, we take things like, uh, you know, heart disease and cancer incredibly seriously, but he says that obviously when you actually have someone presenting with a mental health problem, uh, when you can actually find any care, that uh, it's actually not that great. And he even used the very strong sort of metaphor that um, that when a when a dog gets gets hit by a car in Australia, that they actually get better care yeah. than someone presenting to a hospital with mental health problems. Um, Patrick McGorry also says that uh, in Australia our suicide rates are twice the amount as the people being killed in motor vehicle accidents um, and also that uh, suicide is the leading cause of death for young people in Australia. Uh, we have about eight people taking their lives every single day in Australia. And he went on to say that, um, you know, like in Sweden where they're really trying to reduce the 
the accident death toll. They're trying to have a zero death toll in Sweden from motor vehicle accidents by 2020. That we should be looking at something similar in Australia to our suicide rate, which is at epidemic levels. Um, I think in the in the mental health service, it's it's very difficult because we have a very much an overloaded system. Um, sometimes in Australia, uh, for ch with child and adolescent mental health services, there's often a six to eight week waiting period mm. for a young person uh, to see someone in the child and adolescent mental health team, uh, and that can be way too long. Yes. Um, it, certainly if they're at crisis. Um, there is a lot of money that's sort of put into crisis and, and certainly up in Hornsby Hospital we have about 12 beds now in the Brolga unit. But those beds are catering for all of northern Sydney wow. uh, from Central Coast right up to the Harbour Bridge. Wow. So, I mean, that's a huge geographical area. Beds. Yeah. So those beds are often completely full um, and it makes it very difficult that... Often if a young person presents, um, uh, a young people also often know how to play the system. So a lot of young people don't want to stay in hospital, even though they might be at risk. They'll know what to say. So they might sort of say, well, I no longer feel suicidal or I'm no longer having any thoughts uh, of self-harm uh, just to get released. So there's a definite triaging system going on, isn't there? I mean, if there are only 12 beds for that number of people, then the the practitioners, the, the medical staff, have to assess and make an assessment based on need and go for, they have to, um, because it, it would have to be a policy, they would have to look at, well, how do we define need and how, and so there are certain triggers that, that would be a concern. But that that would mean that, you know, very rarely People ask for help early. They very often at crisis point by the time they ask for help. And when you get turned away from one of those units, then I can imagine it is, uh, it's a, it's quite a big blow. Uh, so, yeah. I, I mean, I sort of think we're talking about the problems that are right on the coalface. We almost need to go back and look at early intervention, don't we? Look, I think that's the key here, and this is certainly what Patrick McGorry is saying as well, that um, it's fine to sort of speak to a young person in a hospital and, and the way they triage for suicide is, well, do you have a concrete plan? So if someone has a concrete plan of how they're going to take their life, that's usually a huge red flag that, okay, this person needs to stay mm -hmm. in hospital. It's just a vague notion of, yeah, I'm vaguely thinking about not wanting to be here. Uh, they usually won't be admitted. But, but we do need to put a lot more money into early intervention uh, because putting money into crisis um, is not going to solve these issues. We, we need to put money into prevention, uh, giving young people coping strategies to deal with things like anxiety and depression. Um, and these need to be done within the school system. Yeah. It's hugely important. It's a very, it's a very uh, big time when you're at school because children are incredibly sensitive we see that with them when they're when they grow up and they're spherical they're these they don't they kind of are restricted by their body but there's almost a kind of feeling that they're so much bigger than their body you know they can sense things and they feel things and they're so connected with nature and slowly as they go as they grow up and they go through some of the systems that we've got in place you know draw between the lines um color in between the lines come on bring it into the box and you know be tick the boxes of being good at all of these things they're they're 
their connection with nature and life and and the bigger aspects perhaps it's a a, um, a connection with God it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and I question whether that sensitivity to gosh is there not more to life becomes a tension that um, you know we we've we've got to rather than build on resilience and say we've got to build resilience which we do have to do we do have to say we can cope we equally have to have the conversation about um, our values and what we place in our values so if our value is all about what people do then we're not really appreciating why the depression and the anxiety is there in the first place it's like we've got to go 100 steps back isn't it david It's a really good point, Lucy, Uh, and certainly if we look at somebody like Martin Seligman, who's the author of the Positive Psychology Movement, he very much talks a lot about uh, meaning Mm. and and having this sort of higher purpose. Um, And he he says that a lot of young people today are really lacking this sense of meaning, Mm. uh, this sense of, well, a reason for waking up in the morning, this higher purpose, and as you said, a connection to values and principles. And community. Like, exactly. Not just here for myself, and I understand. I know, I know uh, puberty. I know adolescence. We both, you know, we both work in that area, so we mm. understand the developmental stages. But one of those stages, um, when the hormones come out, is about making it more about I and being a bit more selfish, and the world becomes about you know how I approach things. But if there isn't within the community a holding of that space and saying, yes, I appreciate that, but you also are here to serve within a community you are part of a community that's where the lack of connection starts to happen isn't it so you know they start to to lose a connection with what their purpose is not just for them getting out of bed for themselves Mm. but equally as part of a team it's really important and uh, unfortunately I see some teenagers today where they it's sort of like well what's in it for me what am I going to get out of this and uh, the notion of giving back to your local community has sort of gone away. But I, I am very positive to see that some schools have now taken this route of uh, compulsory uh, community service, often yes. around year 10, where I think yeah. they have to do two weeks of service uh, for a local charity. Yep. And I think that's really important. Uh, kids get away from this sort of instant gratification of having the latest technology and what's in it for them but it's about giving back somehow to um, mankind in some way. Yeah. There's no mark attached to it. This is something that you're going to have. And how great would it be if the education system allowed the space for that to be in there from year seven? A, a school that um, comes in here quite a lot, so Mount St. Benedict School, mm-hmm. come in here so many times and they share with us their projects that they do. So they're going to come in in a a month or so's time to share with us, you know, the next round of what they've been working on. I just feel that that should be embedded in every school's curriculum as part, as equal in terms of um, attention as the maths, the English, the geography, the science, because it's making, it's helping them understand they're a rounded individual, not a tick the box individual. It's hugely important that we're not just teaching kids the curriculum. Uh, I know um, Judith Wilden at Abbotsley was instrumental in in initiating this uh, service in uh, local charities. I know Ravenswood has done it as well. But but even through things like Duke of Edinburgh Mm. as well, you you do some stuff with local charities. So 
I think anything where your children can actually get involved with that is very important. It takes away this notion of it's all about me. Yep. And that's often where depression can come from, when yeah. people are so self-consumed. Yeah. Um, yeah, very and, important. And, of course, that affects the brain. So it's not they don't mean to. It's just there is a chemical imbalance at a time, isn't there? Absolutely. Um, and it is, look, we're seeing huge things with teenagers as well. Like the average age in Australia for a girl to go through puberty is around 10.6 now yeah. in Australia, which uh, at the turn of the 1900s was about 15.6. So yeah. That's she, age, guys, 10 that, years and 15 years. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, for, for young people, there's a lot of pressures now. They're going yeah. through puberty a lot earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think... I think schools need to, as we said before, though, have more open discussion, though, around mental mental illness, suicide yes. and self-harming. Yeah. Hugely important. So we're going to have another break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, how we can support people within the community. So I think we'll kick off when we come back, is how we support people who work in the industry, who have a young person who they've let go or they've been working with because I have to say we mustn't forget that, that they hurt equal and equally um, and also the families, the friends and um, I'd love to touch on your accidental counsellor training as well. Fantastic. All right, so um, you're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. I have David Sider in the studio with me. Hello, David. How's it going, Lucy? It's going <laughs> awesomely well this morning and it's a difficult subject to talk about but I feel like it's giving us an opportunity to really support people who have experienced it either very personally or in their community or in their friendship circle. It, it, the ripple effect of suicide is a, is a big topic and well worth talking about. I think everyone in the community knows someone or a friend of someone or a family member of someone who's taken their life. Yeah. So it, there is a huge ripple effect out there. And... It's obviously how we deal with it. And um, one example I can give you of just working in the industry where I got quite frustrated was, uh, I was uh, there was a school um, that sort of told me that about 15 girls in year nine were actually cutting themselves, self-harming. And the school counsellor asked me to design a program, a self-harming program, and go into the school and give the, the other girls in the year education about, well, what's going on here? Um, I then had a call the next day from the Department of Education who said, well, hang on a sec, David, you can't come into a Department of Education school and mention the word self-harming or suicide. You can come in and do a general resilience program or stress management program, but you can't actually mention those words. And it really frustrated me because this was about providing education to the other girls in the year about what was going on with these 15 girls. Um, and at the end of the day, the school in, uh, got the, the, the girls who were self-harming just to wear long sleeves and uh, we just we couldn't run the program. So, Holy moly. Yeah. So this is uh, unfortunately what we're up against. And I think the Department of Education, um, sometimes they're very worried about the contagion effect mm -hmm. of mentioning the word suicidal or self-harm. Mm -hmm. But certainly the research that Patrick McGorry has done, he's saying no. We have to talk about suicide. We have to mention the words suicide and self-harm. Yes. It's very important young people are aware of these things. This is very different to something like 13 Reasons Why where there isn't the education behind it. But 
in schools we do need to open up discussion, have the appropriate education well, and absolutely. the minimisation around it. And 13 Reasons Why talked about it from a revenge point of view. Exactly. I mean, we have got to show that there are better ways to deal with pain and um, shame or fear or hurt than that. We, and we do have to talk about it in that, in that respect. One of the other things I'm aware of is, you know, we live in an age of quick fixes, don't we? Yes. Social media, you get immediate response. Um, you know, we get immediate response from pain relief. But mental health is not a quick fix. And sometimes that frustration just means that, the, that we just want it to end. And a number of people that I've spoken to who have not managed to go through with it have said afterwards, they're so pleased they didn't, but at the time, they didn't see another way. They didn't see that there was a way through it. But looking back now, they, they, someone just happened to come in, a phone just happened to ring. And, and that, those are the things that made them realise there is always someone ready to help. There is always somewhere I can go. So... I wonder if in this last section we could maybe talk to about how you can cope when you're left behind. I mean, I know before the break I said I'd, I'd really love to, to raise the awareness of, say, for example, the workers in those hospitals who've, who are working under a system where they have to let them go. How do we support people? How do you support yourself maybe when you're in that situation? What practical tools can we offer? Yeah, it, it, it's very tough and uh, certainly uh, for clinicians who work in hospitals uh, where young people have been released and then have taken their lives, it's incredibly stressful and often workers will, will have to take stress leave and, and things like that. But um, look, the, the thing is, uh, there, there's good stories and bad stories when you work in mental health. I had a young person the other day who's now 25 and he uh, messaged me on Facebook and said, oh, well, look, thank you, David, for saving my life when I was 17 and, uh, um, you know, it was fantastic, uh, the support you gave me and things like that, which it's so nice to actually hear those good stories. Sometimes yeah. we don't hear a lot of those. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, uh, when things do go a bit pear-shaped and, and, and don't go well, I think as clinicians, it's very important to say to yourself, well, I've actually done the best I could do. Mm -hmm. um, something I try and say to myself every day when I go to work or when I come home is, well, look, today I actually did my best. I emotionally and mentally, I, I gave everything I could mm -hmm. to these young people. Um, I often use the saying that, you know, often we have to sort of be separate but emotionally available to a lot of these young people. Mm -hmm. That, yes, we have to be emotionally available and emotionally present while we're dealing with them. But at the end of the day, we can't, we're not in control of these young people. Uh, we can't control every move they make. We can't control their, their personalities and their way of thinking. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, but for, for, for clinicians, it is always about self-care is hugely important. Um, the burnout rate working in, in mental health is quite astronomical, actually, mm -hmm. as far as... Um, family and community services and also local hospitals, there is a huge burnout rate because people often don't look after themselves. Um, supervision is really important where for myself, I actually go and speak to a psychologist once a month uh, and actually have a big debrief and get stuff off my chest. Um, and then I also look after myself by doing things like kayaking and other exercise yeah. and, and stuff like that as well. 
And and that's the same for anyone, isn't it? It could be the same for a parent because when you're a parent in that situation and, and a carer of sorts, you fi- you have to look after yourself first. Same, you know, on an aeroplane. When there's a problem on an aeroplane, you put your oxygen mask on before you put it on your child. So the stability factor of the practitioner, of the parent, of the friends, you know, you cannot influence, you cannot change what someone else is going to do, but you can offer a sense of stability in a world that is very unstable. That's the thing. I think as clinicians or parents... Often we're the, uh, the one stable thing that these young people have in their life. We, we become like a rock. Um, uh, a lot of young people have rung me up over the years and said, oh, look, David, you really changed my life. And a few of them I sort of thought, wow, I, I can't even quite rem- I didn't really think I did that much with that mm. young person. But they, they just said to me, nah, look, my life was just completely out of control with my family and with everything else going on. And you, you became the one stable thing that I actually had in my life. And it's hugely important for a young person. So I know you and I know how you work and I, I would like to join that bandwagon of, of giving you some, some, some compliments here. But it's actually an appreciation because what you bring is a lot of love to what you do. And um, I know other people and that's what I admire in them where you give permission for the for the young person or the other or the people you're working with to make their own decisions but you represent love you still say um you you're solid you're not judgmental um and you're not going to try and fix everything for them the person who you're talking to has to be able to fix themselves however if you can show them a loving person, someone who loves them and will walk beside them while they try and work it out. That's what those young people were saying to you. Thank you for walking beside me and not judging me while I tried to work out all my stuff. I think that's the key that some of these uh, young people we deal with, they may have had parents who have criticised them quite a bit or even school teachers that have criticised them, uh, people telling them all the things that they've done wrong. Um, as one of my heroes, Carl Rogers, often says that it's so important to have unconditional positive regard for young people, where, as you said, you can actually just sit back, uh, be non-judgmental, accept who they are, uh, and if they can actually just feel accepted and, and they're not feeling judged, uh, that's when they can actually really open up to you and feel listened to. And at the end of the day, um, if I go back to what I went through in the 1980s and I still believe my best friend taking his life when I was 13 is probably what got me into the mental health industry. Mm. I really think I was so confused by that that I said, right, that's what I want to study and do with my career. Um, So in a way, I'm I'm a lot happier today that young people are actually talking about it. I even hear young people saying to their friends, oh, sorry, I can't come with you today because I'm I'm going to see my counsellor this afternoon. And I love that. I think that's fantastic that young people are breaking down these barriers. Um, we, As I said before, I wouldn't have even known what the word depression meant when yeah. I was 13. But young people today, we have broken down a lot of barriers. Yeah. There's still a long way to go in, in reducing the stigma and, and, as I said before, talking about suicide and self-harm. Uh, and I, my passion is let's get a lot more early intervention happening in schools and the local community. Perfect segue to the Accidental Counsellor. What, what's that program? Well, this is a program that I run uh, with the local community. It usually goes for about uh, four hours of training. 
But what it does is it, it stops people in the community being a bystander. Uh, sometimes if uh, in the workplace you may see someone struggling who may be depressed or uh, even if you're out and about and uh, you see someone having a situation in a local shopping centre or in the street, this stops you being the bystander. It gives you the, the tools to become... Um, uh, a, a, it gives you the tools to actually have some basic counselling skills under your belt. Uh, and what it means is that it can give you the courage to actually go up to somebody, start asking them some questions, start sort of calming them down. Um, and I think it's very important because I think, unfortunately, in this day and age, we are becoming uh, a bit of a bystander, a lot of us, yes. just with our fast pace and yeah. we're, we're very time poor. Uh, but this is a, a program I run. It just gives you those basic counselling tools. Lovely. Oh, look, David, um, I'm enormously grateful to you for coming in. I, I hope that what we've given is some, that self-care, knowing the importance that actually you cannot look after another until you're looking after yourself. But in those, you know, um, as in the reachout.com, looking on there for what are the feelings that are normal after you've experienced someone close to you take their life? Even in the community where there's just the ripple effect, it feels like you know them very personally, even though you weren't right there. You know, what are the feelings of shock and grief and anger and um, powerlessness? It's important to acknowledge those, to let yourself feel them, and then to seek other support within the community so that counselling actually becomes quite a normal thing to go and look at. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so much grief and loss that uh, parents or families will go through with suicide, um, and it's very important that they do seek help to get some grief and loss counselling. Uh, on the other side, also, um, a lot of parents ask me when when to worry. When should I be worried mm. uh, with certain behaviours of a young person? So again, again, parents need to seek help if they are worried about uh, their own child or someone else's child. If there are some certain triggers or signs. And also not to take a not to take it lying down if you disagree with what someone's saying, to be the champion for someone who is not doing so well, so that others can be aware just in case they are so busy and so pulled in many different directions that they're actually not aware. I think that's really important. Uh, sometimes we have a very concrete view in our head uh, of that, you know, a young person's fine or something like that, but uh, you're spot on. We've got to actually take a step back and uh, sometimes just uh, listen to what clinicians are saying um, and just take that on board, um, especially as, as parents. It's very important. Thank you, David. Look, um, uh, I will link to a lot of the things that you've spoken about today. Um, I, you'll, I'll be able to do a contact on the website for David, should anyone want to get in touch with him. Uh, thank you for coming in, David. My pleasure. It's been great to be here, Lucy. So, really, uh, we've got to look at being a community that cares. We may not have oodles of time, but we can let each other know that there are other people who can help or that will be back soon or will find time to continue that conversation and maybe offer resources in the meantime. There's no point in having awareness days like Are You OK Day if we're not prepared to take action. And I think David's point about us becoming a, um, uh, a community that look and don't actually action is one that we need to be very careful of. 
Um, particularly when the world's scary out there, we need to be ones that don't check out of it, but actually step into it and 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 walk love. I think give a give a reflection of love and stability. So look for the community, look for the support in the community because it is there. Now the podcast for today's show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website later and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates, and uh, then please remember to like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page. Links to all of those spaces are available on the Triple H homepage. In next week's show, we're going to be talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I have two incredibly inspiring stories, but equally ones which I hope will garner support for further conversation for change. Both of these um, interviewees are um, ex-police officers. Till next week's show, remember to take a a moment to look after you, to connect with the amazing people in the community. Be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.